as I mentioned, that it is Tim's birthday. And uh, if you want to know the, how old he is, he always keeps track of the days. He's like Rain Man. You ask him any day how old he is, he'll tell you the day and probably the hour and minute as well. But he's 20,088 days old. And if you want to know how many years that is, do the math, but don't forget the leap days and so forth. So uh, it's a special happy birthday to him. And remember, Leslie, she's home under the weather as well today and would love to be here with us. Friends, this is Easter, and Easter is... It's such a joyous holiday. After the, after the somber reflection of God's love shown to us in the fullness of Christ on the cross on Good Friday, I love the fact that we get to Easter. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, as the old message used to say. But today we want to focus on Easter, and one of the reasons that the good news of Easter is such good news, and that's because it's about a kept promise that God keeps his promises. He is a trustworthy God. He is a promise-keeping God, and he kept his promise, the promise that Jesus made. He foretold and predicted his suffering and his execution at the hands of the Gentiles, and everybody knew that he meant the Romans, but he promised something else. Not only could it be Maybe seeing the political climate of the days, the occupation of a, of a restless people by the Roman legions, and a cruel, a cruel prefect, Pontius Pilate, overseeing that occupation, a man that eventually, shortly after Christ's crucifixion, lost his job and was recalled to Rome because of the many people in Israel that he had put to death and his cruelty to them and his disdain for the Jewish religion and the Jewish people. Well, all of this, if a man on that most restless of religious holidays, the Passover, rides into town uh, in the, in the, in the, with the trappings of a, of a prophetic arrival of a messianic king, which the people recognize, celebrating with hosannas and their cloaks and their palm branches, well, it would be, you know, it would make sense to be able to predict that you would be in trouble, at least arrested, if not outright uh, executed. And Jesus predicted that. But he made the promise that that wouldn't be the end of it. And we see that Easter promise uh, throughout the Scriptures, but in the Gospels we see it. Jesus began to teaching it clearly in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, this is his final visit for the Passover, as he was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will turn Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That's His prediction. But then He promised this. On the third day, He will be raised to life. Now, whenever Jesus would predict that clearly and make the promise of his resurrection, we're told that the apostles of the disciples, those who heard it, they, they didn't take it seriously. They didn't understand it. It was, it was hidden from them. They said, well, it's, it's, maybe it's a parable. It's, a, it's some type of little riddle. We'll figure out the spiritual meaning of it. He can't seriously be talking about physical crucifixion, death, and then a miraculous resurrection life over death. That, that can't be it. We'll figure out what it means. But it was a simple promise. He wasn't speaking in riddles. He was telling them plainly. Scripture says he began to teach them 
plainly, without parable, that he was going to suffer and die and on the third day be raised to life. He made a promise. Now, I love looking at the definitions of word. Here's what promise is, the simple definition of promise. It's an express assurance on which expectation is to be based. I tell you something that you can trust. And you can base an expectation that I will keep my promise and that you act accordingly. That's it, simply. Simple promises. Don't forget to pick up bread and milk on the way home. I won't. I promise. We make simple promises all the time. Trust me. Be assured that I will keep my word to you and act accordingly. Well, sometimes we know in society we take certain promises very seriously. We talk about them as if we are, for instance, in court. You see a person with their hand on the Bible. And we know that that's called swearing an oath. Oath is just a serious promise. I promise to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. In the sight of God, I promise to tell the truth. You swear an oath. Or perhaps you stand before your friends and family and you hold one another's hands and you exchange rings and you make promises to one another. We call that exchanging vows. A vow is just simply a promise. I make a promise to put you first in my life as you promise to put me first in your life. It's a beautiful and precious thing. Or perhaps it's a contract you sign your name to, whether it be to buy a car or take out insurance or to buy a house and, and mortgage away your future. That is a promise, a legally binding contract. You make a promise, and there are serious repercussions if you break it. There's heartbreaking repercussions if you break your promise and your vow to your spouse. It goes on and on. Promises. But Jesus made a promise and it was a promise kept. Easter morning, the message of Easter morning is that he wasn't kidding. He was telling the truth. He kept his promise. He was raised from the dead. Their grief was turned to joy. Think about the promises in your own life. Whether it be a contract or a marriage vow, kept or broken. All of the promises we make and assume every day. When I look at promises, a big part of promises is the psychology of it. Promises foster expectation. If somebody makes a promise and you know them to be trustworthy, you expect them to keep that promise. If they're untrustworthy, you expect them to break it. We talk about politicians making promises during campaigns. Those are promises to get your vote. Do we expect them to keep them? <laughs> you hope they will. <laughs> Maybe they'll do something different and keep their promises. But all too often, experience shows you, no. It's just, a, it's just something to say to gain support. We understand that. But when somebody who's important to you makes a promise to you, what are they telling you? That you are important to them. That they value you. They value your trust. And above all things, they want to keep your trust. 
Jesus made a promise that he kept. And friends, you live your life as a follower of Jesus based on this kept promise. There have been famous promises throughout history. I look at our own lives, the promises we make every day, but some promises were remembered, remembered amazingly in history. And you know, Pastor Allen loves his history. I want to look at a couple promises as we look at how Jesus kept the Easter promise. And one of those, one of those is a famous promise to return. Douglas MacArthur. You remember that promise? It was made during the darkest days of the Second World War. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. We know that's when Imperial Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and brought the United States into what was already the Second World War. They were on the sidelines, but after December 7th, no longer. December 7th, we remember, but we forget December 8th. They attacked the Canadian troops in Hong Kong. They invaded the Philippines. And that enormous army under General Homa in the Philippines, the Japanese pushed the Americans, which that was their, their base in Asia, was the Philippines. It pushed the American army all the way back to a little peninsula, the Bataan Peninsula, on the north side of Manila Bay. 70,000 American troops and countless thousands Filipinos, uh, non-combatants and soldiers, were pushed into this little killing zone on Bataan Peninsula and the island fortress of Corregidor. They were commanded by the most famous military man in the U.S., more famous than General Patton, and that was General Douglas MacArthur. President Roosevelt says MacArthur can't be captured. It would be a disaster to morale in the United States. And so they held out for the first couple months of the war, but out of supplies, clean water, food, ammunition, the end was near. Reading from Joe Archino, a historian, he writes this about how MacArthur made this promise to the people of the Philippines. It said, with the military situation extremely vulnerable and continuing to grow more dire, General MacArthur was ordered by President Franklin D. Roosevelt to leave the Philippines in March of 1942. One of the most revered soldiers of his day, MacArthur left his men and the place that had become his adopted home with a heavy heart, but he obeyed the instructions of his commander-in-chief. After a dangerous journey by boat and, and plane and submarine, making it out of the war zone to Australia, MacArthur arrived in Australia where he publicly made a vow to the Filipino people. Through radio, he radioed back to them in captivity, I came through and I shall return. It was a promise that would drive him over the next two and a half years, and one that he very much intended to keep. You know how the war, if you're a history lover, you know how the war in the Pacific played out. It was led not only by President Roosevelt, but the chief of naval operations, the famous Texan Chester Nimitz. And Nimitz's plan was called island hopping. He, what they would do, they would bypass strong Japanese positions and take weaker ones behind them, cutting off the Japanese, starving them out until they made it all the way to the islands of Japan. And Nimitz's strategy said most of all they needed to skip the Philippines, leave the Philippines under the brutal occupation of the Japanese because we know what happened to those soldiers that MacArthur left behind. The Japanese, when they captured so many, 100,000 Filipinos and Americans, they had no 
way to keep them alive. So they marched them in the, in the hot sun on the Bataan death march into captivity where between fifteen and 20,000 mostly Filipino casualties happened. They called it cleaning up at the end of the day. They would go down the road and they would drive over the prone bodies or just bayonet and kill the, kill the non-combatants and the men left behind. And the Filipino people suffered. They fought courageously. They went into the jungles and fought as guerrillas. But that cruel Japanese occupation, it ate at MacArthur every day. He had to keep his promise. He had to, he had to twist arms. He had to fight with Nimitz. But he would not let the Philippines be skipped over on the way to Japan. He would not let them be forgotten. He knew what the people were suffering. And he intended simply to keep his promise. Hmm. On Friday, October 20th, 1944, MacArthur's invasion to liberate the Philippines began when American troops successfully landed on the island of Leyte. Although his troops had cleared the initial barriers of Japanese resistance, it was still an active battlefield when MacArthur and his staff waded ashore. Undeterred by the dangers, he pressed on until he once again stood on Philippine soil. Once ashore, MacArthur delivered a prepared speech and announced the words that so many had been dreaming to hear. To those reduced to a soul-crushing existence under a brutal Japanese occupation, MacArthur proclaimed, People of the Philippines, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippine soil, soil consecrated in the blood of our two peoples. We have come dedicated and committed to the task of destroying every vestige of enemy control over your daily lives and of restoring upon a foundation of indestructible strength the liberties of your people. Amazing. A man had a way with words, and one of the most famous promises kept. Hmm. Not as famous as the one we celebrate today, when Jesus said, I will return, and he kept that promise. Life over death. The promise, the resurrection promise of Jesus. The empty tomb. That is what we celebrate today. Three quick points about that promise. Remember, uh, we read in Matthew 20 that he made that promise. He made it many times. In Matthew chapter 16, for instance, Jesus promised. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's where Peter steps in and says, it will never happen. Not as long as I draw breath. I will protect you. No one will harm you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He knew that was what he came for, to be the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. And it included the sacrifice of God's perfect Lamb, that He would take our sin to the cross. It was a promise made. Now the disciples couldn't believe it. It was too hard for them because they loved Him too much. They couldn't imagine Him dying on the cross. But His enemies remembered His words. They understood it. And after He was crucified, it's because of this promise He made that they went into action. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62, the next day after the crucifixion, 
the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give orders for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. That la- this last deception will be worse than the first. And that's what led to the tomb being sealed with an official Roman seal and having guards placed on it. Because they understood he meant that he would be raised from the dead. A promise made, understood, and kept. The best part of all was the promise was kept. Again in Matthew chapter 28, a little further down, verse 5, the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And quickly go tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. He kept his promise. A promise kept. Imagine if that promise had been broken. The Apostle Paul says in Romans cha- or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter, if we as Christians followed a crucified Lord who had never been raised from the dead, if the resurrection hadn't happened, we of all people in the world should be pitied. Foolish, misguided, hopeless people. But Paul says, but he kept his promise. He is risen from the dead. Paul met him face to face on the road to Damascus as he went to, to persecute the church. Broken promises, sad to say, they, they are part of our daily existence. We say things fully meaning, well-meaning people, meaning to keep our promise. And yet sometimes we forget. That shows a person they weren't that important to us. Or sometimes we choose ourself in selfishness. We know that marriage vows are always broken for selfish reasons. Why do we remember broken promises? They teach us lessons. Sometimes we carry grudges. One of the most famous promises that was broken was made by George Herbert Walker Bush. And he made that promise, and he wagged his finger, and I watched it on national television. If you ask somebody, where were you all those years ago? Sometimes you remember. August 18th, it was summer. We were in, we were in Edmonton, in our apartment, apartment 205 at 10616 84th Avenue in Edmonton. And I was watching the Republican National Convention. I, didn't wa- I enjoyed watching the, the, the Democratic Convention. You know, they had great speakers. Jesse Jackson, like a black preacher. Those were some real, real barn burner speeches. But then, at the Republican Convention, their candidate, George H.W. Bush, former vice president of President Reagan, he got up to speak. Nobody had any hopes because this man... He was not that great a speaker. He was, a, he was more of a bureaucrat. He'd been with the CIA. He'd been an oil man in Texas, but not that good a speaker. But he had great speech writers. Famous woman Peggy Noonan, Jack Kemp, and others wrote his speech for him, and he delivered an amazingly good speech by his standards. It's remembered as 
the thousand points of light speech. He talked about all the volunteers and Americans and all the good that they were doing, and they shone in the darkness like a thousand points of light. Great speech. But unfortunately, Peggy Noonan wrote one line that it's most remembered for. He wanted to contrast himself to the Democrat candidate, Michael Dukakis, a New England governor. Dukakis and like Mondale before him, they had said if they were ever going to retire the debt or balance the budget, they would of necessity have to raise taxes. It just made sense. Besides, Democrats see your money as their money. You know, it's just, it's how it works. So Bush wanted to set himself apart. And you remember what he said. Peggy Noonan wrote the line. He said, and at first when he read it, he said, Peggy, isn't this a little strong? Isn't this language a little strong? She says, you want to make a promise, you use strong language. So he used it. And he said in front of everyone, read my lips. No new taxes. Six words that changed the course of his life in American politics. Because you know what happened. He defeated Dukakis in a landslide. But as often happens, while he controlled the White House, the other party controlled the Congress. And to pass a budget, only two years later, in 1990, he raised taxes. Not a little bit, a lot. To pass that budget, he raised taxes. So remember a couple years later? It's now 1992, and he's running against Slick Willie, governor from Arkansas, the I feel your pain governor. And what did they do? They reminded him again and again, and every commercial had President Bush, read my lips, no new taxes, promise broken, untrustworthy man. And Clinton was elected, and this led to the Republicans taking the Congress and Newt Gingrich's contract with America and it began the polarization that is in extreme today in American politics. A lot of it began with a simple promise that was broken and exploited. Incredible consequences of a broken promise. But Jesus kept His promise. And friends, that promise that He made, that He kept, His own resurrection becomes effective for you and I in putting our faith in Him. That His resurrection assures and guarantees your resurrection. You can trust it. You can trust it because He's a trustworthy God. He kept His word and He will keep His word to you. The resurrection of believers. In John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus was going to do a resurrection. His friend Lazarus had died, and Jesus was going to go call him out of the grave. But on the way, he met Lazarus' grieving sisters. And in their grief, they said, yeah, yeah, we understand the resurrection in the last days. We understand one day we'll see him, but we miss him now, today. And Jesus, remember, came to the sisters. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 
and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to, who is to come into the world. Whoever believes in me, though he lives, will never die. If he physically dies, he will live. Jesus says that he is the resurrection, and he's our resurrection. When you put your faith in him, you're in Christ, and his resurrection assures your own. It's an incredible and a beautiful thing. And the promise made to you was made because of love. For God so loved the world. He loves you so much. He wants you with Him. He wants to raise you, not to physical life, but to eternal life, to live with Him eternally. Promises kept because of love are in many ways the most precious ones. I'm convinced that there's no more precious promises we make in these lives than the ones we make to our, to our spouse at the altar before God and this company, fully intending to keep it sometimes better than others, but a promise kept in sickness and in health. That's a precious thing. A promise kept was the name of a book that I purchased years ago, back in the early 90s. It was a story of, of Robertson McQuilkin and his wife Muriel. Beautiful picture of Muriel was on the cover of the book. I saw it in a Christian bookstore in Medicine Hat and bought it. And after I read it, I went online and I bought a case of that book. And I gave it to people over the years. I'm sad to say I don't know if I have one in my possession any longer. I gave it to people experiencing that, that terrible grief of losing a partner, having them physically, but through dementia or Alzheimer's, losing them piece by piece as their memories disappear and they seem to fade away before your very eyes. Robertson McQuilkin in the Christian world as a regular author and writer to Christianity Today was well known among people at the time. He was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. He, was, he and his wife Muriel, they married young. They went straight to the mission field in Japan, were successful missionaries. But when called home from Japan, like MacArthur was called home, to a greater work, he began to train missionaries he made it a promise when he left japan he promised the people i will send back 50 missionaries to take my place and over the years they literally kept that promise from columbia bible school 50 missionaries went as his urging to japan oh he was important and the work he was doing was important he was a pace setter he was a visionary he was an important man for the kingdom of god but into their 50s, they begin to notice that his wife Muriel, who her kids love to tease her, mom's always been a bit of a space case. She began to get just a little more spacier than normal. She, one of the things that Muriel loved to do was for, for uh, vision, vision or visually impaired Bible school students, she would tape record their textbooks and they could listen to the textbook and a book that was not readily available on audio tape, and then they would be able to pass their courses. They begin to get the tapes, and 
they'd start out good enough, but then Muriel would go off on tangents and lose track of what she was doing, and, and they became quite concerned. Well, eventually the diagnosis came that she was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. They didn't understand it as well in those days, but, but what, one of the things that Robertson noted is that though he lived a mile from the, or about a half a mile, it was a mile round-trip walk, he walked to the school every day, the Muriel just, she couldn't bear to be apart from him. She was agitated and nervous. And he would go to work, and during the day she would make 10 trips back and forth, back and forth to the school just to make sure he was okay and to reassure herself and go back. It got worse and worse, and though she never understood what was happening to her, she'd see people mention Alzheimer's on television, and she'd say things like, boy, I wonder if I would ever get something like that. What would we do? Though she'd been diagnosed for years. And eventually the day came where he had to make a choice. And he received advice from all of his peers, Dr. James Tabor, the eminent New Testament scholar and others, to tell him that, Muriel needed to go into an institution. She needed to be cared for by other people than himself. And in his book, he explained, this is actually quoted from an article he wrote shortly after he shocked the Christian world and resigned as president to devote himself full-time in their late 50s to taking care of his wife, never institutionalizing her, and he never did. He was her sole caregiver until she passed away in 2003. He wrote at the time, shortly after his resignation, speaking of Muriel, he says, As she needed more and more of me, I wrestled daily with the question of who gets me full-time, Muriel or Columbia Bible College and Seminary. Dr. Tabor advised me not to make any decision based on my desire, to, my desire to see Muriel stay contented. Make your plans apart from that question. Whether or not you can be successful in your dreams for the college and seminary or not, I cannot judge, but I can tell you now, you will not be successful if you keep Muriel. When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part? This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. Such a heartwarming and inspirational story. It's helped many people over the years. Because it was exactly the same time in Christian circles that noted American media preacher Pat Robertson he declared from the pulpit that divorcing a spouse with Alzheimer's was perfectly fine because they were just a body. The soul was already dead and gone. I choose to follow Robertson McQuilkin, not Pat Robertson. Not for any specific reason medically, but because 
you make a promise in sickness or in health. Because Jesus made his promise in love to you and kept it, today is different. You, as a follower of Christ, can live your life in assurance and confidence. Resurrection confidence. This is the confidence that our forefathers and mothers in the faith had as they went publicly before the screaming crowds in the Roman Empire, as they were torn apart by wild animals, as they were burned, as they were stoned to death. They were confident that they were in God's hands, that they were safe, that their resurrection was assured. For two reasons. First, as we saw a few weeks ago in our Fruit of the Vine series, the message on first fruits, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter, in verse 20, we're told that Christ's resurrection was the first fruits. It guaranteed all the fruit of resurrection to follow. Paul writes, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes to those who belong to him. Our resurrection is guaranteed. Jesus is the firstfruits of all our resurrections. In the same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, a little further down, in verse 55, we read, I'll begin a little earlier, Paul writes, when the perishable, that is, our physical bodies that die, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Friends, the Apostle Paul says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. For our faith is not in vain. Because Jesus is alive today. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living. Whatever men may say, He lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the joy of Easter morning. Father, it speaks to us of a promise kept. And a kept promise speaks to us of our value. That we meant enough to keep, for You to keep that promise. And Lord, based on what Jesus did for us and our faith in Him, we know with full confidence that we too will live. Even though we may physically taste death, 
that we will live eternally with Christ. We will be more alive then when we, than we ever were in this life. So Father, may we take this confidence, the good news of the Easter message, and Lord, share it. Share it with those who struggle in life, who are hopeless and helpless against the weight of this world. Those who are wounded and brokenhearted and betrayed by all this world's broken promises. May we share that beautiful promise kept that guarantees life eternal. May we take that good news with us wherever we go, from this place of worship to our places of ministry, at home, at school, at work. May we be like salt and light in this world. Because Jesus has risen. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. God bless you and have a blessed Easter Sunday.